It's John Lamoureux. All right, this week we're talking to an industry legend. It is Dave Robinson. Now, Dave, with Jake Riviera, back in 1976, founded Stiff Records. And Stiff is responsible for launching the careers of legends like Madness, Elvis Costello, who you're listening to here, uh, Ian Dury, Graham Parker, The Damned, uh, Nick Lowe, The Pogues. All of these bands were either... Uh, discovered or launched to the world or and or managed by Dave Robinson. Well, eventually, Stiff becomes acquired by Island Records, and so he becomes an executive with Island. That is a whole other chapter of his career, which we didn't get into quite as much, but Dave has a hand in compiling the legend compilation of Bob Marley's that pretty much every person on Earth owns a copy of. Dave put that together. So these days, after retiring, he's back at managing acts, and now he's got his sights set on the band Hardwick Circus. I think of Hardwick Circus as coming from the legacy of bands like The Kinks or Blur, where their perspective is so specifically and uniquely British. And I love that kind of stuff. So we talk about what was so great about Hardwick Circus that, deci- that made him decide to come out of retirement to manage a band again. After so many years, he didn't have to do that, but he sees the promise in this band here. And in fact, uh, I haven't received them yet, but I'm gonna be receiving a couple of copies of Hardwick Circus' latest album on CD. And when I do, we'll be giving them away to Patreon supporters. So anyway, Dave is open to all of these topics. It is so cool to talk to a legend like him. I hope he writes a book and uh, we get stories about all of them. So I hope you enjoy this. He's a legend in my book anyway. He called me from his home in London. First and foremost, I want to say to you that for I, I was debating where to start. And I think starting at the most recent is the good idea because for somebody who has the most famous and impeccable taste in British music history like you and has brought <laughs> so many incredible artists to the world, you in these years have chosen to put your mu- your muscle behind Hardwick Circus, the band Hardwick Circus. And I'm curious why. I mean, I've listened to them. They're great. What did you hear? What makes you get excited about it? Well, I think essentially my son wanted to be a manager. He decided that he would become a manager a few years ago. And uh, he located this band by himself one day. And in order to get or to convince them that he was managerial uh, material, mm-hmm. he said to me, look, will you put your name on it and just advise me from time to time, but I won't, you know, impinge uh-huh. on your on your life anymore, which was a complete lie. <laughs> so <laughs> so, so I, I complied and I went to see the band and I thought this is pre- pretty good. And that's the reason yeah. why I thought, this is a very interesting young band from the very north of England. Carlisle is a peculiar place for the rest of us. That's where most of the invasions of Scotland and England took place. And most of the banditry of England 
in the early centuries were on the border with uh -huh. Scotland, above Carlisle. Okay. So they're a very interesting bunch of people, and it's very out of the way. So my son, uh, I agreed to to sign an agreement with him to be the the band's manager. Uh, we met the parents. Uh, they were all several of them underage. We had to uh, get involved in the in the old fashioned uh, parent kind of uh -huh. uh, <laughs> thing, and and it was good. And we were going we were getting places when. Um, my son Milo came to me with the story that his photographic career was about to take off. And obviously, you know, children always think their father's going to be really excited by this prospect. <laughs> I wasn't, to be absolutely honest, <laughs> in this instance, because I could see that work loomed. There was no way we could just down tools. Uh, yeah. We were in the middle of a project that we were all, including the band, involved in. Uh, then the pandemic came. The band were due to go to South by Southwest. We had a lot of the bigger festivals uh, booked. Mm -hmm. We were going to really be happening 19, uh, 2020. Yeah. And uh, and the pandemic came and ruined an awful lot of people's lives, including particularly young bands. Yes. Because the music industry has shifted so dramatically from the way it was that um, it's 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 a delicate. It's a delicate job getting anywhere. People believe yeah. that if you don't do something within a period, that for some reason you've lost your way. This is not the music business I came into. I came into, let's do it properly. Let's keep on with it. Let's work on the songs. Let's try and make something out of it. The time is immaterial as long as people have the the ints to get it, to get it together. Right. So I'm, right. I'm, I'm in that game. And... Uh, these are, you know, these are my people now, and uh, we're to be we're, a, we're after it. You're getting to be an old man, though, Dave. Do you still have the heart and the energy and the, oh, the motivation I, I, to do this kind of thing? I have a lot of I have a lot of energy and a lot yeah. of motivation. Whether whether I have the physical capability to right. tour the world, uh, yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, it, there's no doubt that uh, you know that one will pass out in harness, so to speak. That's sure. the, that's the essence of somebody like me. I've been doing this since I was 19. So uh, it's true. It's I guess you don't really know any other thing, right? This yeah. is what you do. This is Dave <laughs> yeah, Robinson's my, life. My my wife gets totally pissed off with the I, whole uh, I could feel that. You mentioned your son being his photography career taking off. You had a photography career too. Does your son? Yeah, do... yeah, so, yeah. I started. I started with that, and I started taking pictures of him. Obviously, well, yeah. I have three. I have three sons, so I take pictures of all of them. And um, you can see on the wall here yeah. behind me, it's beautiful. Several pictures. Yeah, there. So it was a great uh, learning curve because photography, remarkably had an awful lot to do with record business, printing, sure. making sleeves, doing all that kind of work. That's stuff that you have to learn anyway if you're going yeah. to run a record company. And eventually, Stiff became a focus of all the various kind of crafts that I learned uh, along along the road. So I was always able to face down people with their idea of what the money yeah. should cost and what the job should be right. because I had been there. That's, that's a very useful thing. Yeah.
Let me ask you this. Managing a band like Hardwick Circus at a time like now, in the with the music industry being so different than it was when you started, what does success to you look like for a band like that? Well, it's definitely got to be uh, live. It's kind of judged by the live performance, by uh, the uh, the audience uh, coming and the audience taking part with the band again. Like, it's all about fans. I mean, music yeah. is word of mouth, and I I do I do uh, counsel people to say you've got to get a big crowd because it's not just your mother that's going to make the word of mouth work. So <laughs> you've so got to true. get out there and find some. Also, it's a test. It's yeah. a test to your musical, not just your entertainment value, although that's got a bit of it, but the actual music ability, the kind of people that you're going to. Uh, get watching you has to do with the music you are providing. Yeah. And we looked through, you know, all the history of Motown and the Beatles and this and that yeah. and whatever. We're looking and watching at the music they liked and the music they performed. And that's, in a lot of cases, that is our judgment of them. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm not a fan of Queen, for example, at all. Mm. Having having met Freddie, who's a nice enough guy, I don't, I'm, not a, <laughs> I'm not against him, but I I never, I was never a huge fan of the theatrical. And English music is a lot of it was the theatrical, and particularly t- till the Beatles arrived. Yeah, you know, it's all to do with kind of cabaret. I'm, yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a fan. I like the music to speak by itself. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, it's it's funny you just dropped that little hint that you talked to you knew Freddie, because I'm going to ask you about a bunch of people that you've probably known or whatever. The one thing that uh, one not the one one of the many things that Hardwick Circus reminds me of that you seem to have an ear for are bands that are uniquely or very specifically British. Hardwick Circus reminds me of something in the in the line legacy line of like the Kinks or Blur or bands that could not have existed anywhere else. And you've had your ear to that. Someone like Madness or Ian Drury or these guys were uniquely British and they had some success in the States, Madness specifically, but you've had this ear for what made sense over there. And uh, do you... Do you recognize that within yourself? Is that something you're oh, yeah. conscious of? Uh, oh yeah. No, I call it folk music. Ah. Uh, not not the not the bearded, <laughs> not the bearded stuff where yeah. everyone's shushing and whatever. <laughs> but the <laughs> fact that people are writing about the the world they come from. Yes. The, the essence That's of a it. town 
or an area and of, of England where I've been since I was uh, quite well 19 uh, yeah. but also Ireland I'm I yeah. the pogues I signed on the basis oh, uh, the on best. that basis it, I'm I'm interested in the songwriters and I've been interested in the folk music of madness where the sound of London uh, Camden town yeah etc uh, etc et so Mainly, if you look back, I look back very, very occasionally, not not a lot, uh -huh. and and see um, a band that specified and typified an area or a town in England, and wrote about the the, the mundane lives of yeah. the people, which obviously is not mundane, but the average sure. lives of the people. That's that's where I'm. That's where I'm from. Right there. I can tell. I can tell. That's. Perfectly put. So let's talk about Madness for a second. I, I mean, uh, in going over the list of some of the bands that you've managed or discovered or whatever, uh, they meant a lot to me. And they're one of the few that had one, unfortunately, um, stateside hit. How did were they on two tone and you talked them over to stiff or how did it work? No, their their involvement in two tone was one single. That's what I thought. The, okay. the Prince, yeah. So they uh, they joined in with Two Tone for that period. Then all the kind of major labels in the UK discovered them by sight, discovered them because uh -huh. they they um, seemed to have a Londony kind of Cockney kind of way about them. And suddenly everybody decided they'd like to sign them. Now, to the band's credit, they they were romanced by everybody. They they had a lot of Spanish meals, as they described it to mm. me. Mm. Yeah, so they went out for spaghetti with a lot of record companies. <laughs> but they didn't. They kept thinking, "Who are these people? They're not really our kind of people. What is it all about?" Now they were doing that themselves. They yeah. they they had everybody come and tell them great things as the record business does it becomes your friend inevitably when it look when you have something sure. that they want or something that somebody else wants that they want to stop the other person from getting that's a big yeah. part of of record auctioneering <laughs> so i needed i was getting married and i needed a band for the wedding and i hadn't seen madness they didn't have live uh, gigs at the time so i booked them for my wedding and that was uh, how um, that was how I auditioned the band. Oh my gosh! Madness <laughs> played your wedding. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's great. And the what? I mean, our house, the direct, the video you directed, by the way, um, was really their one hit in the states. Did you make? At that point, were you still trying to break America, or were you just we, like uh, we, whatever we happens, didn't... happens? We didn't have America. At the time that the wedding took place, and I decided, you know, that One Step Beyond is going to be a big, big hit, and that, what a great title for an album, and blah, yeah. blah, blah. My wife is still not entirely thrilled by the whole event. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, Seymour Stein had, a, or had a, ventured into the picture before me, and he mm. liked the band, and but he wasn't too sure what to do with them. He couldn't understand the musical form that they were generating, the two-tone musical form. He didn't, he didn't, right. that didn't fit his American ears. Sure, but he could see something that he liked. So 
Um, so we, we, Seymour and I, who know each other, knew each other. Yeah. Um, we got together and I said, okay, so you have America and I'll have the rest of the world. So let's go and, and see if we can land the band in the face of quite a lot of opposition. Yeah. I just finished so, reading his book recently. What a guy. Yeah. Yeah. Seymour was remarkable. Uh, very old school America, but very into the music. Yeah. You know, it's an addiction. It's an like you, great ears. Yeah, years, just like you. Yeah. 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 Um, now, before we get off madness, I want to. We have some Patreon supporters, and I tell them who I'm interviewing. If they want to submit questions, they can. Um, I got quite a few for you, actually, so I'll sprinkle them in. But one of them from Matthew Quinlan. Um, if it's one to know if it was true that you literally bet the company on it must be love getting into the top five, and yes. if it, yes. you did. Yes, I did. Yeah. thing about making videos with madness aside from generally they're very talented they're very talented actor they could have been anything really yeah yeah um so uh in running the record company i could only afford to take a day off a week to shoot a video for either madness or somebody else on the on the roster just thinking about the videos they took yeah. a day to make so all those videos are made in one day and the interesting thing is that madness had a piano in every single video, because uh -huh. Mike Barson would play right. piano. And he's always playing. He's like a drummer that uh, he's playing the piano. So he played uh, a little riff. I, I regularly found the next single in the last video making. I regularly <laughs> found that because I'd go, what is that little melody uh -huh. there? And I wouldn't know the lyric or I wouldn't know whatever, but I would, uh, I would remember. He would uh -huh. tell me something and I would remember. At some point in a rehearsal then, this riff came up again. And I said, what is that? And he said, uh, oh, it's a cover. You know, he brushed it, brushed it aside. Uh -huh. And a couple of the band did too. Oh, yeah. yeah. I said, that's, that's really good. I think that could be a hit. And at the time, Madness ha didn't have any real material on hand. We were coming up to Christmas, and they didn't have any. They were going out on tour, but they didn't have any real material so i said that could be really good no no i want to hear that where is that what's the title and they were reticent about telling me i mean i did notice you know i uh -huh. knew them very well so um i do tell long stories john this so, is gold i love you <laughs> tell all the stories you want <laughs> so um i discovered it was a song called it must be love and it was a cover by a gentleman called labby sifrick 
Love him. Yes. So I said, I said, well, that's a hit. We should record that. That is a hit. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they said, no, we're not. It's a cover. We're not doing any more cover. We don't do covers for records, you know, yeah. blah, blah. After the initial one step beyond. Sure. So I said, no, no, it's a hit. It's a hit. So one of them said, well, what are you talking about? You know, how do you define a hit? I said, well, a hit is like a top five record. That's a top five record. Yeah, yeah. And they said, well, we're not doing it. <laughs> they loved tormenting me. They loved it. If the band isn't trying to kill you, they're trying to torment you. <laughs> to so, so I said, you know, they said, so Mike Barson said, what will you give me if we do it? And I said, what do you want? And they uh-huh. said, we want your company. Whoa. And I said, well, that's interesting. Okay, I'll give you the company. If it's not a hit, a top five record. Wow. And uh, we worked out a, a, a letter that I would work for them for three years in my current salary if and when they took over the company. So you would have gone through with this. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. of course. But but you but were worried track, about it, probably. That, yeah. Well, I was very worried. The track Brilliant. went to number four. It uh, wasn't but it wasn't by any means the shoe in. Uh-huh. It took quite a lot of effort because <laughs> everybody had the same attitude. The public also thought, well, Madness is doing a cover. Now why is that? You know, everyone uh-huh. had a kind of an attitude. And Clive Langer and Anna Stanley, the producers, I said, boys. There's a very serious business here. The record company, uh-huh. we are very seriously involved in making uh-huh. this record a hit. So it went, it went to number four. That's great. Clive's been on here a couple of times, by the way. I love him. Um, one other question that Matthew put out there was, um, how, did, how did the Bell Stars come about? As I lie here, thinking of you, I realize... That nothing is new. Lying in my bed, thinking of you. I realize nothing is new. You say you love me, but won't success. I say you're lying. Nothing has changed. This is a sign of the times. Peace of mind to come. This is a sign of the times. Time to be stars um how did they start i wondered if they were like the uk response to the go-go's yeah i'm i love the ronettes you know Uh, i mean that's where that's where that comes from i i love the ronettes i can't think why girls shouldn't be able to play i don't Uh think it's you know it's it's a physical uh thing uh but the actual feeling and whatever else it's difficult to get. They were a very, also, they wanted to be a large band. They had a large you know, catchment. I only met two of them and thought, you know, do you want to form, do you want to put a record out? <laughs> right. Um, so the Bell Stars came, came from, uh, from that uh, era, you know. Yeah. Um, I signed Amazulu to Ireland eventually, very similar 
much more reggae kind of band than and uh you know so there have been girl bands you know through through stiff's uh history quite a bit yeah yeah um okay i got more like that to ask you but i want to know what it's like rooming with van morrison because he's one of the most you know famously prickly people ever and you not only managed him and sort of discovered him in some ways but uh was his roommate or flatmate well I, I i didn't discover van at all really oh, van okay. van no van started them in belfast yeah good point uh, good point he did. you know yeah, in 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 ireland inevitably you know irish people know this but maybe some other people have have missed what the history tells us is that the north of ireland was very protestant and the south of ireland the republic was very catholic and that's been going on since 1604 so that argument has been going on for a hell of a long time. I wish yeah. more countries would look at Northern Ireland and discover that there's no answer to, you know, to this kind of area. So you have to kind of get along. There has yeah. to be some kind. But, you know, who am I to tell them? Anyway, if you come from Ireland, you know this thing. Van was from the north. And I met him through a group I signed called, well, I managed called The People, who went on to be uh, the heir apparent, E-I-R-E apparent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, The uh, guitar player, very well known, Henry McCulloch, who went to Wings and to the Grease Band Mm -hmm. and is no longer with us, unfortunately. But um, they introduced me to Van originally as a one-off kind of, they were going in Belfast to, to visit Van and I went with them. And Van was very, you know, he didn't speak. He wasn't, he was never into small talk. Yeah, you know, I can see that. If you, said, if you said good morning, you were probably out of line straight uh-huh. away. You know? so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, but what he had is a great record collection. So I spent the day saying, put another one on, put another one on, put another. And he, he appreciated that. Playing records to somebody, he's right into there. Wow. Them, them were an incredible band. They, yeah, they were, were incredible. And they were produced by a, a producer called Bert Burns, an American guy. And he did Here Comes the Night and Baby Please Don't Go. He made those two great records. Yeah. And eventually Van fell out with his then manager and when he discovered that the manager were using what he considered his money, his songwriting money, to pay their wages. He didn't. He he left immediately. Van was yeah. a man of very firm, very uh-huh. firm ethics. Yes. So he came down to Dublin. I was running. I had opened a club down there. I was a photographer, but I had mm-hmm. opened a, a nightclub, having seen quite a lot of music in London when I was taking pictures. Right. And so um, Van came down. Belfast is not a town to go to if you're. Uh, if you're not on the high hog, right? You go back to that kind of town. They they are they are vicious. Got it. <laughs> they are nasty. So he, he trickled down to Dublin. He heard there was a, 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 a club which had just opened, and we were the first. So there was after that there was a lot more clubs in Dublin, but we were the yeah. first one. And uh, you know, I had met him. I took his pictures at them for a couple of magazines previous. So we had we had mm-hmm. met each other after the record uh, playing thing. We sure. also had, had knew each other. 
So, I, you know, I, he had nowhere to stay. I offered him a, a place in my flat. And, you know, it was a mistake. <laughs> oh, oh, really? Why? <laughs> I mean, he's, I can imagine why, but why? Well, he's the worst flatmate you'll ever meet. And <laughs> he, he, ruined, he ruined my social life, which was pretty good at the time. Uh-huh. He ruined my social life big time. He's he's just you know he's he's an in, he's an incomplete human being in the in the normal domestic chores yeah. of life yes yes oh that's <laughs> hilarious so, uh, i just imagine him being cranky and angry all the time and so i eventually convinced him to go bert burns was hassling to get him to go to new york and i convinced him that he should go it wasn't difficult. I didn't have any real management uh, knowledge or yeah. I hadn't, you know, I was a photographer, club owner. And uh -huh. so, you know, I said, look, he's made two great records, which I play in the jukebox all the time. Sure. You know, why would you not go? Uh, he wants to pay for you to whatever you, nothing's going to happen here in Dublin. Yeah. And you don't want to go back to Belfast. Yeah. So off he went. I oh, mean, that's classic. Get, to give him his due, he, he asked me to go with him. But I knew that Van doesn't like passengers, you know. Yeah. And I'd, I'd be a passenger, and I didn't, you know, fancy that. Oh, that's classic. Now, didn't you also room with uh, Jimi Hendrix and Noel Redding? Yeah, yeah. I stayed at Jimmy's flat for uh, about, I didn't have anywhere to, to stay at the time. And I and, and Noel, I, I stayed at both their individual mm -hmm. um flats uh, for several months you know they're i mean i got on well with musicians let's yeah. let's face it I, you know whatever i had it fitted in it you know knowing the equipment knowing the guitar sure. knowing you know knowing the bits that they were interested in i mean you know it was uh yeah. in england in england at that time uh, uh, and perhaps some element of america nobody was working for money they were working for music and for the excitement of yeah. taking over the world after the Beatles, you know. Yeah. So, so, you know, the odd blonde girl may have featured. You know, but, <laughs> <laughs> they don't all um, have to be blondes. But anyway, I yeah, get it. no, I, I, had, I had a lot of time with both of them. When you see Jimmy top lists of greatest guitarists of all time and stuff like that, knowing him personally, does that still jive with you do you think yeah pretty much he's probably the best there's ever he been was, he was he was the best yeah and particularly in a certain kind of way there were, yeah. there were other players there were blues players he he was a good blues player but he wasn't exceptional uh -huh. Uh -huh. he he definitely he definitely had um he definitely had his own way and he had his own style i mean jimmy yeah. either I do tell the story, obviously, say Jimmy either had a guitar or a blonde girl in his hand at all times. <laughs> <laughs> and so, that sounds about and right. That, and that's true. That is yeah. true. What amazed me was the fact that nobody was giving him the possibilities and the place to perform the kind of stuff that he could get to do with really? some help. It, it it was very much the business when I got into America and started kind of roadieing and then tour managing. I didn't understand why people weren't realizing that this was extraordinary, that this was yeah. incredible. I didn't yeah. understand that. You know, I thought mm, maybe I could go into management down the road as you do when right. you're doing one job. You think, oh, 
And I thought, how does it work? And I was watching how it worked. And how it worked was the band played itself to a frazzle, um, you know, took far too many stimulants because they were knackered. That's uh -huh. the English word for tired, tired all yeah. the time, completely tired. And we had record companies and managers who, who really weren't interested in, you know, they, the, the, the term a tired band is a happy band. <laughs> was their main was their main mantra yeah and and i didn't understand why huh. so jimmy jimmy was capable of an awful lot of uh, different things you know i went to fender to try and work out to get his tuning together because <laughs> you know he used the twang bar on a stratocaster uh -huh. so much that you know to change the springs etc was the effort to to go and um Nobody was interested. Fender weren't interested. Oh, they that's gave weird. Me, they gave me some free uh, guitars. But, yeah, no, I think it was slightly racist, to be absolutely uh, honest. I didn't think of that. You're probably you know, right. Yeah, you're probably right. Let me ask yeah, you then about Noel, too. Because Noel, I feel like in some ways, uh, comes off as the maybe least essential member of the experience or the guy that Jimmy was sort of like, I don't need this guy anymore. I feel like Noel is such a good bass player and a great musician, but his persona or the image of Noel we have now is, is, is of a guy who was expendable, maybe. And that's a shame because I feel like he was better than that. What do you? What's your take on this? I don't. I don't think that Noel was very okay. solid. Mitch, yeah. Mitch. Mitch was more difficult in a lot of ways. <laughs> Uh, he also was a bit starstruck. He wanted to be, he felt that he'd arrived and, and he wanted to be kind of equal to Jimmy. And I most of the people around were very happy with him having a good position. But yeah. pe people were working for Jimmy Hendrix at that right. time. Noel, Noel was very solid and, and a great band member, journeyman. He was also very funny. He was a very witty mm. guy. And it's that humor that keeps a lot of bands together oh, in times definitely. of stress. Definitely. So he was great. He also saved my life. I mean, he literally saved my life completely. He's oh. a very, well, he's a very um, light guy, a poundage, uh -huh. very light. Um, I, you know, he was very, very slim, uh -huh. very slim guy. Um, my band, The Air Apparent, uh, we, did a, we did a Miami festival with Jimmy. Uh -huh. And uh, I had to go and do the settlement, you know, get the ticket money organized. Sure. Uh, and um, I got back to the hotel and it was in Miami and there was a, a swimming pool on the roof. Now, it, you know, Americans see this kind of normal, but coming from Ireland, as I did, it was obvious, uh, you know, there was, there was things. I'm looking, I'm looking at a tiny robin that's come into my house. Oh. Flying around. I hope he doesn't hurt himself. Anyway. Wow. I wondered uh, what you were looking at. That's awesome. Yeah. It, it, he follows me around in the garden. I do. I like gardening. He, he follows me around because obviously where I dig, there will be there will be bugs. Or, yes. And, yes. And he, he just follows me around. So he's kind of my Wild. Anyway, so you know I, this Robin. That's great. I do. I know a Robin. Robin's <laughs> son. Uh -huh. um, so, um, yeah. So, uh, Mitch, the band pushed me into the pool. The band were not to know that I didn't swim. <laughs> I couldn't swim. 
and they pushed me into the pool. It was like a funny, let's push yeah. Dave yeah, into yeah, the pool. Yeah. And then they ran off. Oh, they no. ran off the roof. <laughs> they ran away. <laughs> so I'm down there. And you know that story about um, all the swimming manuals that I'd ever looked at and went before my eyes while I'm trying to <laughs> find out how to swim. And Noel Redding, who's tripping at the time, he'd taken uh. some acid. He's tripping. Oh, yeah. oh no. Oh, hell. Uh, anyway. That's um, cool. He um, he looked in the pool and he said, oh, Robbo, Robbo seems to be down there a long time. And eventually it occurred to him to actually jump in. He went away, he told me, for a uh -huh. while. Then he came back and I was still down in the same place. Still no way. Good. And he jumped in and pulled me out. I mean, I tried to find my band. I was actually going wow. to commit murder. I would still be in jail in America if I'd caught them. Um, so Noel was all right with me. He was right. um, essentially the frustrations of the musical thing. What we were talking about, the fact that bands were not catered for creatively yeah. in any way at that time, it seemed that um, those frustrations brought about the end of the experience also uh -huh. the experience were put together very quickly um for a specific reason chaz chandler who was at this point had taken back his his old animals manager um uh mike mike uh -huh. jeffries uh -huh. um only because he had no money he was the band broke up in new york the animals they had no money um he had a ticket home and somebody convinced him to go down to the village and see this guitar player. Some girl convinced him to go down. And he saw Jimmy playing by himself. Yeah. And the song he, he saw, as I, when getting married, saw One Step Beyond, he saw Hey Joe. That's oh. the song he, he saw. So he um, realized that this could be, you know, he was depressed yeah. coming home to England with nothing after yeah. a after years in the animals. Yeah. And so he thought this is a clue. But he realized he had to get a group together very quickly. So uh -huh. he found Noel and Mitch very, very quickly. Mm. They were like mm. they were like on the scene in London Got playing it. playing in bands. So okay. Noel, who was a guitar player, could play bass. Oh. Uh, picked it up straight away. Okay. Yeah, but he but he never he never was a bass player. He had never Wanted. He wanted to be a lead guitar player. I don't think Mitch I knew that. Was a, Mitch was more a jazz drummer. Yes, he was. Uh, and, and was and was very well thought of musically in London. Yeah. yeah. So they were put together very quickly. It was a very quick thing. Huh. It wasn't like Jimmy finding two people. It was right. They they needed to get some income. Yeah. Quickly. They needed to get a record deal quickly. Mm. It all needed to happen because nobody had any money. I get it. And so. So you okay. know, I could talk that talk about that period. Yes, that period is uh yeah, Noel Redding, great bloke. Mitch, Good. very difficult, uh difficult great kind drummer, of guy. Though. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Jimmy and Jimmy was um Jimmy was phenomenal, but yes. capable, I thought, of greater things, which only came out in the studio eventually. I could see but that. He, he was never in tune. He could never play in tune. His guitars were all in those days of tuning, you used to have folk music. Bob Dylan would tune for 20 minutes in some uh -huh. cases. I mean, it was uh -huh. remarkable. And the uh -huh. crowd would sit. 
And wait, uh, can you imagine nowadays? No, no, I can't. Um, okay, let me ask you, you mentioned humor, and I have a couple things that I wanted to ask you about in relation to that. Tracy Ullman, um, my first introduction to Tracy Ullman was seeing her on things on American shows like The Tonight Show or Solid Gold singing They Don't Know About Us. <laughs> is just one of the greatest singles ever and then she becomes this comedian and i don't i've never known what was came what came first if she was actually going to be an actress and someone said you should do an album or if she was going to be a singer and someone said you should be a comedian no, tell me about was, tracy she was a comedian on okay. uh, bbc2 which is a kind of junior channel uh -huh. uh, for for a more creative kind of interesting stuff BBC One was a, a big, major, straight-ahead uh, station. Right. And, and so she had an audience, a small audience, with three of a kind, with a guy called Lenny Henry. Black oh, I guy, love Lenny. Very, very, yep. very funny. Yep. And um, they did a couple of series, but and it did well, but it wasn't, it wasn't mind-boggling. It wasn't, there wasn't some huge uh, thing. It was a seemed to be a funny, slightly off-the-fringe kind of show. Uh-huh. Um, my wife met her in a hairdresser's and heard her saying in a hairdresser's, I'd really like to make a record. I the, the hairdresser was talking to her. And, this uh -huh. was and my missus, Rosemary, gave her, uh, wrote my number on it and gave it to her. It said, call, call uh, Dave, you know, he'll, he'll, uh, He'll he'll look into it for you. No way. So so Tracy came and and we talked about it. I was fascinated by the fact she was on television because one is always looking for how to get the record to market. You know, you're always uh -huh. looking. You're thinking to yourself, this is a really good band. Nobody's ever heard of them. How can I get their music in front of an audience? And how can I see what that audience reacts to? in the music and that's that's how that's what you do that's what's running a record company and a lot of um a manager of band that that's what it's all about is how can you bring your music to the public and do you think it'll work do you think they'll have it so uh so we we i had kirsty mccall songs great too. yeah yeah those songs hadn't been hits with her but uh but she had uh, she had had a hit then on Polydor. She left Stiff to you know what I uh -huh. think 
you'd taken the king's shilling, as they say, when you join the army. Uh-huh. So she'd, she'd gone with the majors, and she had a big head, but she, she found she didn't enjoy it. She thought she re- looked back on Stiff as oh, being really? a good time. Yeah. Okay. So, and she came back. But the songs were there already. And uh, Tracy uh, was a natural for the songs. Very, um, you know, they fitted her. They fitted yeah. her. They were about the same thing as Kirsty had written them about. And also, Tracy had a decent voice, but she um, she hadn't got, she had more, a, she went to a stage school. So she had been trained more as a, as a singer in a musical rather than a rock and roll singer, shall we yeah, say. Yeah, that no. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, as a result, I speeded her up a tiny bit on a very speed. So um, <laughs> Ron Spector used to do that, uh-huh. Ron Etz, and I kind of had grasped that. Uh, Ooh, so it's not, a, it's not a lot. It's not a lot. It's a tiny yeah. little bit, and it gives you yeah. a little more treble and just a little more earnestness. Yeah. She, uh, Tracy, true to fashion, said he he speeded up all my stuff and made me one notch short of a chipmunk. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she had a big she had a big following, a decent yeah. TV following, which uh, we were able to bring into stiffer. Always, we were always. I was always looking for how to do it, how yeah. to how to bring on 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 unusual music, so, uh, something different to the public, and get them to pay attention. If they yeah. didn't like it, then they didn't like it. They only bought it because they heard it and one and liked it. So Tracy was fantastic. Eventually, having had several success, and of course I shot her videos, uh-huh. so she she was a natural. She she had worked in front of a camera an awful lot. And I found that, you know, very, very good fun. Yeah. She, she liked to laugh as well. So we got her as a VJ. We we got her a gig as a VJ on MTV in New York. And she was there for three months, coming back to England and whatever. But she uh-huh. did great. You know, the, yeah. yeah, the Americans loved her. Yeah. And that's where she got onto all those late night shows. Okay. They wanted her on those. And MCA, who were then her record company, they were the stiff licensee in America, uh-huh. Irving Azoff, uh, MCA. They used that, got her onto the bigger bigger platform, singing some of those songs. Uh-huh. And, and eventually they got a, quite a big hit uh, yeah. for her. Now, an interesting thing about, uh, <laughs> about Tracy is eventually... Uh, MCA and other people wanted her to do a show. They they'd got used to this funny girl doing uh-huh. funny things, so they wanted to do an hour show on Fox. And uh, her husband, who was a TV producer and knew his way around, they 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 tested an hour of Tracy, and they found that she was very good for about forty minutes, <laughs> but it didn't. The, the American public didn't stay with her huh. for an hour because her is very English, her, her repartee and sure. And, yeah. So they suggested that maybe they would put a cartoon that they had on the show. Right. That was the idea. And uh, her husband said, her husband, Bright Spark said, well, 
if we're going to introduce a cartoon, uh, we should have some part of it. So they ended up with 25% of the Simpsons. Really? I've always wondered if they got a chunk of that. I know she introduced they, them or launched them, but I didn't know they, she got a piece. They, they got a big chunk. Ooh, good for her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, she's great. And I love that song and that period. I remember I remember being at a friend's house and Friday night videos coming on and her video coming on. I was at a party at a friend's house. So it's about 11 o'clock, 1130 at night, my time. And I call my dad because he and I had both been really enamored with her on the talk show circuit when she was on and not realizing how late it was. And I called and, you know, he, hello, he's, he's sound asleep. Dad, you'll never guess. Tr Tracy Oldman's on. John, why are you calling me so late? It's I'm in bed, you know, but I was so excited when I saw her video on there that you did. Now, speaking of funny people who are uniquely British, Ian Dury. He's a guy who I think he was your first number one, right? Hit me that's with your right. rhythm yeah. stick. Was that that's, the first? That's, yeah, first number, number one. one. Yeah. yeah. In the deserts of Sudan and the gardens Japan, from Milan to Yucatan, every woman's, every man. Hit me with your rhythm stick, hit me, hit me, Schütterdor, ich liebe dich. Hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me with your rhythm stick, hit me slowly, hit me quick, hit me. is another guy that I just don't think Americans understand or get or know that much about. Chaz Jankel was on here very early on. I'm a big fan of everything Chaz does. But um, how, you know, when you saw Ian and he's this short and he's got a slight hobble and uh, but he's so funny and like angry. What made you think that he was the guy that this guy had star power? I saw him. I saw him in a band uh, in a very small club in the middle of nowhere, particularly. And um, the band were extraordinary. There uh -huh. was a very tiny guy playing bass, and there was um, a drummer whose bottom half didn't work. He, he was on <laughs> he was on crutches, and his bottom half had to be moved. Ian got polio when he was nine, and That's one half point. of his body was completely wasted. One mm. one half really didn't work. He had calipers to hold a leg together and Oof. whatever. But he, uh, and also he had been, the English are very primitive about special needs at that time in the 50s uh -huh. and uh, uh, late six, 60s. And, you know, he had gone to, he'd gone to hell school where they just put, People generally, it wasn't a question of are they mentally unfit or are they physically unfit. They all right. went to the same place. And the rule number one was never help them up. I thought that's an interesting T-shirt, never help them up. I think it's what the British are doing with all the um, the people who are coming on dinghies across the channel. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd find it. You know. Anyway, uh, that's another another kind of area. Politics. So uh, Ian, so Ian had a band, and they weren't they weren't that great. I mean, he did a, three covers of Gene Vincent. Mm. I remember I liked Gene Vincent and felt he never quite got the admiration he might have. So I knew the song. And he was very good. He was, you know, he had a real, he wasn't a singer. He couldn't sing. Yeah. But the band were fascinating. So I suggested to him, I went back to his house and suggested to him that he start doing some of the pubs that I had going at the time. I had quite a lot of pubs going and bands were having opportunities to play, even though they weren't signing record companies or anything. But Uh yeah, it's now sneered at. By major record companies, A and Orman as pub rock, you know. Mm. Yes, it is rock, and it's in a pub. You're right. So right. it was that kind of uh, <laughs> atmosphere, <laughs> right? Um, uh, and Ian, so I managed Ian for a number of years, a couple of years, which, you know, he kept firing his band. He the band would never. It was always the band. Whereas I thought it's a bit of you, Ian. You know, you uh-huh. wanna, yeah. He could write lyrics. But he couldn't sing very well, and he was quite a bossy guy. He was a he was a bit of a control freak. So I looked after him for a couple of years, and then I put him together with a company that was my landlord at the Stiff Records. So I put them. They were looking for songwriters, and I said, "Well, this guy can write songs. If he could be put together with musicians, you'd get something." He's not a musician, so yeah. and so that was the essence of it, and. He met Chaz during that period, and then it kind of clicked a bit, right? Mm-hmm. But Ian, uh, America, he he went out with Lou Reed. He went on tour with Lou Reed. Oh, interesting. Huh. And uh, he was doing great. Lou hated him, and he hated Lou. It was a great, <laughs> <laughs> it was a great uh, combination. And yeah. then there was a very, there was a very big uh, Arista were our licensees at that mm-hmm. point. And um, Clive, Clive Davis, and there's an essence of, uh, I don't know how far you want to go, but there was, it was a very, uh, there was a very difficult period there when Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick was going up the American charts, along with uh, Lena Lovitch, Lucky Number. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So they were both in the top 70, and they were really happening. And then um, Ian had a guy called Cosmo Vinyl, who went on to work for The Clash, he's a mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. And he kind of, um, Clive hated to be touched. Clive went to the bottom line. The bottom line uh, was the end of the tour with Lou Reed, and they did four nights by themselves, Ian Dury and the Blockheads, wow. at the bottom line, sold uh-huh. out, really happening, end of a long tour. And uh, Clive went down to... Uh, to get that picture that Billboard, you, Billboard had a picture where they have American executive, record executive, right. meets meets group and an English group mostly at the bottom line to commemorate yeah. the end of their tour with blah blah blah, and the single was roaring up the chart with a bullet, and uh-huh. Lucky Number was following it. So we were really in a great position. Suddenly, it was yeah. really happening. Yeah, Clive. I told Clive not to go in the dressing room because I said, look, Ian, it takes Ian. He gets very sweaty with his gig. He's crippled. It takes him a while to get dressed. 
he's a bit cranky at the end of a show. And yeah. the band also, from time to time, have, have hit each other. They've actually had a row, physical row, in the dressing room. And the bottom line had a very tiny dressing room. Uh-huh. The, band, the band is six-piece, uh, seven-piece big. I said, don't go in for 20 minutes. That's what we do, Clive. And he said, no, no, Dave, you don't understand. I do this all the time. Uh-huh. I'll, just, I'll just be in there with my photographer really quickly and out again. You know, don't worry, don't worry. So eventually I said, well, okay, if you want to go, you go on your head. Uh-huh. <laughs> so so he, he went into the dressing room, and Cosmo Vinyl was fascinated by Clive and his clothes. Clive wore blazers and had cravats. He had a whole different clothing. <laughs> yes. so, so Cosmo, when Clive came in the dressing room with a photographer, Cosmo dived down his jacket, opened his jacket to look at the label, ah. Clive's label. So, uh, yeah, so the photograph was taken, etc. The following day, Clive's partner was a gentleman called Elliot Goldman. He was the business affairs of Arista, Elliot. Mm-hmm. So he called me into a meeting the following day after the thing. Um, he said... Uh, Clive was assaulted by your staff last night. And I said, oh, it's not my staff. Uh, right. I mean, they, they all belong to the band, but but he wasn't assaulted. There was yeah. a bit of, you know, okay, a little bit of something. He right. said, so we're going to pull the whole deal. Oh. I, and I thought it was a joke. Uh-huh. Right? I thought it was a joke. He said, no, we're pulling it all. I'm going to account for every money, every dollar we've spent, and I'm going to, uh, we're going to deduct that and the advance we get. Uh-huh. And I said, look, the whole, the records will be lost. How can you do this? It's nothing to do with me. Clive yeah. did not take my advice and did what he wanted. It's, he's a grown man. He's not, I'm not interested in this. Uh-huh. Kind of attitude, this kind of attitude, you may be able to do this in fucking America, uh-huh. but that's not, that's not how we deal with this stuff. Yeah. Do you have a baseball bat? Because I'll smash your office uh-huh. to pieces now. <laughs> I thought I was very uptight. And he said to me, and this is a quote that uh, probably won't end up on your, on your blog. <laughs> he said, Dave, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to fuck you now. And if you survive, you may get to fuck us later. Okay? That's what's happening. Oh, wow. so, so that's oh, what wow. happened. And uh, the record stalled completely. The promotion was taken yeah. off them. And eventually I had to pay Ariston $900,000 to get oh. free. And it took about three or four weeks. The records had gone yeah. at this point. Luckily... There was a gentleman called Bruce Lumville at Epic <laughs> at, at Columbia. And he had been the kind of underbidder for Stiff in America. He had been uh-huh. the one who wanted it. And I went with Clive because Clive ran his own record company and was very powerful. And we seemed to have a good uh, connection. Right. right. Um, and I'm not even sure that, I'm not even sure what Elliot told Clive. I'm not even sure that Clive knew that this was happening. I don't believe that anyone would be that thick, you know. Uh So so, um, Bruce paid the money. Bruce paid 
some of the stuff towards yeah. Arista. And we did a deal then with with Stiff Columbia and Stiff Epic, just yeah. the two different labels of any. But we lost. Hit me with a rhythm stick and lucky number. crucial numbers wow. and also my my people got very managers of other groups got very iffy about going to america with stiff yeah so i had to you know that's when i did an mca deal and various other things that makes sense okay i've heard Chaz told me a little bit about that clive story but not in the detail that you did that is so interesting um let me go back real quick again to some of our patreon supporters um uh, one of them, Mark Olson, wants to know how you uh, came across Graham Parker. Graham's been on here. I think he's a genius. I love him. Um, and how did you put the rumor together to back him up? Well, Graham Parker came to a recommendation from a couple of people. I had uh, been looking after a band called Brinsley Schwartz with Nick Lowe. Brinsley's been on here, too. Thanks yeah, to Jay. And the, yep. and, the, and the bass player was uh, Nick. And um, they they had uh, eventually, uh, we'd split up, and then eventually they split up. I started, I always wanted to have a studio. I always found uh, Phil Spector, I read a lot about him. I thought his records were phenomenal. And he had had the, the use of a studio for a period. That's how he developed this wall of sound that he had. Mm -hmm. He had a studio which... Um, he was able, it wasn't very booked, so there was a lot of free time, and he was able to fiddle with with the sounds, you know. Uh -huh. So, so that is, uh, I always wanted to do that. I wanted to be a rec, you know, record producer. I was producing records, but I had no particular knowledge, uh, sonic knowledge, and so I started a record uh, um, studio in a pub called the Hope and Anchor, very big in the pub. Uh, area Legendary. in London at the time, yeah. yeah. So, so um, somebody said Dave's got a studio to uh, Graham uh, when he came back from Morocco or somewhere. He was he was off doing something for the summer, and so he came in and he, he had a few songs, and I recorded them kind of acoustically, and there was uh, there was a couple that were very good. So uh, the root that Brindley Schwartz had broken up. And they weren't doing anything. I found that they had not reconnected with any band. So the, the individuals had dispersed home. Uh -huh. And um, and two young guys that I was working at in the studio, a guy called Andrew Bodner, the bass player, and Steve Goulding, the drummer, they were local 
to to Islington, and they had been playing a bit while I was working out the sounds and fiddling uh-huh. with the studio. Uh-huh. So uh, Graham came in very, no, not a big chatter either, real <laughs> bit van like, uh-huh. and uh, you know he he we brought them in to back him on these three songs. One was called uh, Between You and Me. All I knew are the lights in the harbor. All I saw are the flash in my head, yeah. And that's all that's left between you and me, oh yeah. Say that's all that's left between you and me. Next thing I knew, I was being carried out to sea. Somebody whispering, hey, what is wrong with me? And that's all that's left between you and me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Say that's all that's left between you and me. And so um, it was good. It was good. It, it, yeah. it worked, it worked uh, chemically. And, of course, it's probably the fastest record deal in the history of uh, record deals, him and Polygram. Um, Polydor, uh, no, Poly, Polygram. Um, Nigel Grange, who was the head of uh, A&R at the label at a time when, when A&R men had real power, uh-huh. he, uh, he heard this single I gave to a friend of mine who played it on the radio over the weekend, Between You and Me. Mm-hmm. He heard it and he said, I, I he called the, the DJ, said, Who is that? I need to sign this guy. So I got a call on Monday. I, I recorded the track on a Thursday, and on Monday I had you know the head of AR, one of the biggest record companies, calling me saying, I have to sign this guy. I mean, what's wrong with that script? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and so and so uh we signed Graham to uh, Polygram mm. and made Howling Wind with Nick Lowe to get Nick Lowe to produce sure. it. Sure. And uh, and that's how that's how it started. Oh, okay. Did you two have a falling out eventually, you and Graham? No, not really. Not okay. really. Um he had an idea that he had just met his future wife. And she's a very pretty girl, very nice. Uh but she was a receptionist for a small management company in LA and he'd met her mm-hmm. so he came to me and said look how about uh she becomes your partner and and the two of you manage me so she could do the american management and, and i said this is very unlikely graham uh-huh, uh-huh. She, you know she's a receptionist right she doesn't know anything about the music business she may learn it but she may not uh-huh. and you know it's not that's not how it works with me. Uh, and we decided to split at mm. that, you know, shortly thereafter. Yeah. Uh, I, I also was starting the record company. Stiff, stiff stuff was starting to have a little effect here and there. So it was, uh, you know, yeah. it was a natural. A natural. Yeah. I, I'm very good friends with Graham. We're good. still, very, we're still close. And, uh, 
you know, we talk, we talk three or four times a month regularly. Good. I love him so much. Um, that's great. Okay. Give me one second to, because this next question is a long one and I want to be able to summarize. Give me one second here. I know you touched on Clover. The story goes. That, okay. Stephen Shaw wants to know, the story goes that Brinsley's, that the Brinsley's had somehow heard the first two records of Clover and were big fans. Uh, you and Jake Riviera brought Clover over to London and a week uh, later, the Clash played their first gig at the Roundhouse. And the game was up for everyone else killing any chance Clover had of breaking the UK. Um, Dave still got them some great support slots with Thin Lizzy, The Feel Goods, Graham Parker, Leonard Skinner. Um, in his book, Alex Call claims there was an opinion that he could cut it in that he couldn't cut it in front of a label execs at showcases. It's a sensitive topic, but maybe Dave could give his opinion. Yes, Clover were a band that I, I've got the record company. They were on Fantasy, and I got uh, a, an album of theirs in a trip to L.A. Um, I was managing Brinsley Schwartz at the time, so I brought the record back along with other records to the Brinsley's lived together in a kind of communal uh, house, big house in the country. Okay. And and so not not expensive. It, it was because of financial reasons that it was easier to live together. And yeah. we were and they were working uh, a lot. Uh -huh. So so Clover, yeah, that record got played a great deal, and uh, everybody knew that one in the in the van and in the house and Clover. So. Uh, around that time, I, I found America as well. Funny enough, which I, <laughs> which I pushed on. You found the band else. America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Dewey horse, and Gary and horse, all that. Horse, horse, okay. no name. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's it's a funny time. Uh huh. Um, so Clover, uh, eventually, when we got Stiff Records going, Jake and I. Uh, Nick really liked Clover, and I approached Clover, who I saw several times in Marin County, and said, you know, why don't you come to England? We we could do a job for you uh -huh. and uh, get you a record deal, because they were a bar band in, in Marin County. <laughs> and so uh, so they hummed and hawed and whatever, all right? Uh -huh. the, d the day they decided to come, which is about 18 months later, later to that offer, uh -huh. They decided to come by themselves. They turned up in London the morning that the Sex Pistols swore oh. on national television. Mm. So, and they were long-haired, uh, leather waistcoats, conches, you yeah. know, cowboys. They looked like an American Marin right. County band. They looked like a sudden band. Sure. sure. And um, and punk had just arrived. So it was like two opposing mm -hmm. musical forces. Mm -hmm. So they went out and did an awful lot. Huey Lewis was a harmonica player. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we got them great support. They made a couple of really good albums. Mutt Langer, who's a very famous mm -hmm. producer, produced a record.
Every every stone was lifted to see if we yeah. could get this going, uh, to no avail, really. Uh, yeah. And Alex Cole was great, and he had a great kind of voice, but the songs weren't quite there. The songs weren't, they were neither Southern, because they're from LA, you know, they're right. from California. Right. So they didn't quite have that Leonard skinner kind of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Doobie Brothers kind of thing. Uh and Alex wrote a lot, and his confidence did go a bit. As a songwriter, it was going a bit. And Huey, Huey was very into Showtime. Huey, uh-huh. Huey was great, lovely guy. I'm still in touch with him. Great shame about his uh, hearing. Big time. Such a loss. Um, yeah. So, but he took the band eventually and turned it into his band and the news, uh-huh. and had huge, huge success. Yeah. But. Um, uh, Alex, you know, still in touch with him, and he's um, been on here. Alex is great. Yeah, Alex is great, and he wrote that number that mm-hmm. um, eight number six seven five three zero nine. Yeah, and uh, you know that that's the way. The, the funny thing about songwriting, people who can write songs that resonate. You know, I, I used to say, "Close but no cigar," and and there are people who can write great songs, really good. Meet for the yeah. album, but not the singles. Not the did track. Huey? Did Huey have like a a frontman star quality about him when he's yeah, just they, playing they, the? No, they no, yeah no they had um, they had a kind of a show band kind of attitude. Mm. Different people had different styles. Yeah, that they then so Huey had about three songs. Okay. Uh, as Alex had most, and then one or two of the others had song. So that's the way that's the way they performed. Uh, Huey was great. He had a yeah. he had he had uh, he's a very always a bit of a businessman. He had a uh, yogurt factory in Marin County, and he, and he was doing really? very well. Oh, yeah, organic organic uh-huh. uh, kind of yogurt. And he, you know, he always had a little bit of income from that source, but he always knew what was happening. You know, he huh. always had had the vibe, and he had the voice, and he had the that kind of soul background. They weren't doing soul songs. Alex yeah. is not a soul singer. No, but but so uh, Huey moved a little bit left and yeah. got his got his thing going. Yeah, that makes Sean sense. Hop, Sean Hopper, the keyboard player, I remember him. Yeah. Well. He was great. You know, you saying that I hadn't thought of this before, but it might be called Huey Lewis and the News, but I feel like other than Huey being the lead singer, there's a pretty even, uh, de- uh, it's pretty democratic. Yeah, Each yeah. guy in that band is, yeah. a, is has is their own sort of special highlight well, I think I think Huey was very good at putting his group yeah. together and making and having the people. Um, John McPhee is in the Doobie yeah. Brothers. Doobie Brothers. 30, yeah. 30 years now. Yeah. And uh, we talk occasionally. I was in touch with Huey, and it was a great shame when his hearing went. Yeah, today. it's very, terrible. Very, frust- very terrible. frustrated by that. Yeah. Um, okay, I've just got a couple left. New Rose by the Damned. You released it as a single, and our understanding, we're all told that was the first punk single ever released. I believe on what could be considered sort of a major label. Is she really going out with him? 
kind of strange like a stormy sea I don't know why, I don't know why I guess these things have gotta be I've got a new rose, I've got a good Yes, I knew that I always would I can't stop to mess around I got a brand new rose in town See the sun, see the sun, it shines Don't get too close or it'll burn your eyes Don't you run away that way is that true? It's the very first, the very first punk single. Nobody recorded one. There wasn't that's any. That's crazy. Record. It's crazy. Well, that's what I. That's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> I thought let's get a record sorted out. Yeah. And also, New Rose was fantastic. It is. And the first album was recorded very quickly. We we used a very small eight-track studio for all this stiff stuff, uh -huh. and it stand it stands up sound-wise. It still sounds. Pretty damn good. The guy it called Bazar, Barry Farmer, was the engineer. If you had a producer and the engineer, neither of them could sit down in the control room because it was so <laughs> tiny. I they had to stand it. up together. Uh -huh. And that's a lot. Elvis Costello's album, My Aim is Truth, Clover yeah. are the backing band. That's right. Uh, and Huey is not it because there's no harmonica. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Tell us about Elvis. What did you see in him? I, again, I don't know if discovering Elvis is the right word, but you managed him for a while. You were first there. He, I believe, is like a computer programmer or technical writer or something like that at the time. Yeah, he, what yeah, did you he see was. in him that was so magical? Well, uh, Elvis was in a band called Flipped City, hmm. and I was uh, running the Hope and Anchor here. So I had the studio upstairs, and I was running the musical policy. The uh, the landlord and I is a good story. The landlord and I, uh, I wanted a studio, and there was a there was a space to have a studio. The landlord obviously wanted people in the place buying beer because it was a small pub, uh -huh. and uh, he needed the income. He didn't have any other income, so we had a few shows downstairs, and it, the pub was a very traditional English pub. It had arched uh, Victorian, uh, arched pillars. Uh -huh. The reason for that was that would be a chill for the beer. The beer was chilled by the the cold cellar. Okay. Uh, but the the cold cellar with the pillars was stopping us having a crowd in there because you couldn't you could get about forty people into uh -huh. the cellar, which wasn't good enough for me and the landlord. So one night. Um, with a certain amount of stimulants, we got a Kango hammer and we knocked down all the pillars. Ooh. Yes. Um, <laughs> he, he had had some steel pillars made, much smaller. The pillars uh -huh. were, were not a meter square, but they were very, very big. Yeah. So I, having, having knocked the pillars down deep at night, it sounded like a bank job. Right, uh -huh. knocking the pillars down. <laughs> I, I went upstairs uh, in the in the bar, and none of the doors would open. Mm. Whoops! <laughs> <laughs> so we had to go back downstairs and screw the the yeah. props up more, and put a brick put a brick uh, thing in to get it back to its original kind of shape. Uh -huh. And and then. In the aftermath of that, we we could we once had about three hundred and twenty five in that space. Mm -hmm. It's a very big space, 
Every time I go into Hope and Anchor, which I do very occasionally, I look up at the ceiling because nobody ever changed it. Nobody really? It's still there. Yeah, yeah it's, still, <laughs> it's still upright. Right. So so anyway, the um yeah, that was that was uh, the Hope and Anchor and the studio there. Amazing. And uh yeah, and that was a, another period. In order to get people in uh to it, I got convinced some of the bigger bands, uh, pub bands, bigger uh -huh. crowd pullers to do festivals. So mm. the, the pub was on a street called Up, Upper Street. So we had the Upper Street Music Festival and various other two weeks of nonstop things. So we were doing all that Americana kind of thing, that, that American kind of reviews right. and Johnny Otis and all that period of America, which the Brits look at and revere is all that organic musical stuff that comes out of America. All that Nashville and everything, that's all Scottish-Irish. That's all sure. music. This is, there's a circular motion yeah, of music. Yeah, good point. To that. And uh, so a lot of, uh, you know, American has always been musically in our minds. Yeah. Wow. Um, this is incredible. you got to write a book, Dave. Have you written one? If you have, uh, I don't know. No, no, I haven't written a book, but I can't remember all of the stuff. I have to... <laughs> I have to meet people or have people like you ask me questions uh -huh. or, or the audience. The uh, yeah, exactly. The audience oh, it's so great. Me. It's very hard otherwise. You know. Okay. So real quick, I'm going to throw, you could talk about the Pogues. You can talk about Motorhead. You can talk about Devo. Any of those, any fun stories or interesting tidbits relating to they either? Are, any of they, those? All, they all have stories and they all yeah. have, um, you know, there's a, there's a thing in the British music industry. Uh, you know what a writ is. A writ is where you get a legal letter mm. demanding that you turn up in court to answer a, a usually very embarrassing question, uh -huh. financially or otherwise. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the slogan is, another hit, another writ. <laughs> <laughs> and so every record has a has stories. I believe it. You know. It was, it was an exciting time, and we were all really absorbed in it. I bet. Do you did you get a piece of the Bob Marley Legend compilation that you put together? No, no. I no. Was so staff. you don't make any money off that? No, no. Oh. I was a staff staff member of Ireland, so I was a salaried member, yeah. and they don't get percentages. Oh, uh, should have. That's you a think shame. Yeah, the sale of that is uh, would be very nice. Yeah, very nice indeed. But uh, yeah. there you go. Oh, it's a shame. Well, Dave, I could do this for hours. I, I mean, I barely. I have other things here that I even asked that I didn't even get to. I love what you deemed worthy to put in this world is has affected the lives of people like me our entire lives. And so your taste, your ability to suss out what's good and what's valuable and what's worth putting out there has greatly impacted for the better people like me. And so thank you for being you and for doing what you've done with your life because it's made my life better. Thank you for that. Very good, John. That's a very appreciative uh, statement. It is very true. Almost everything you had a hand in means a lot to me. And when I look Good. at you, I just think that's the guy who gatekeep who was the gatekeeper of all of it. Thank you, Dave, for being you.
Well, if you uh, if you could do one thing for me, John, and that is yeah. uh, have a listen to uh, Hardwick Circus' new album. All right, there you have it. Pretty great, right, Dave Robinson? Wouldn't you love to just share a pint with Dave in a pub somewhere and let him just talk your ear off about this stuff? I would. Um, now, we I figured we should close it per his request. Close this out with another song from Hardwick Circus. They have an album that came out this year called Fly the Flag, and this is a song off it called A Johnny Come Lately. They are really a special band. I mean, especially, like I said, if your ears are attuned to things like Britpop or uh, the British Invasion or whatever those, you know, those explosions of great English creativity that made its mark on the world, Hardwick Circus is sort of in that uh, style, you know? Anyway... Thank you to uh, Dave for talking about it. And like I said, as soon as I receive these CDs, I'll be posting them on the Patreon page for our supporters. Now, as I've said, the next couple of weeks are a little fluid, but I'm pretty sure next week's guest is going to be somebody who came up in this conversation. All right? That means they have something to do with Stiff. And I will just leave it at that. All right? Now, it could also be a producer... But I'm pretty sure it's going to be the, uh, yeah, the person who came up in this conversation. So why not? Huge thanks this week. Uh, Yan was off, so we had Ryan Murphy back to do the production for us. And as usual, he's fantastic. So huge thanks to Ryan for filling in. It's so nice having this bench of very capable producers now so that when Yan can't do it or isn't around, we can call on somebody who's just as good. Thank you to Ryan for doing that for us. Uh, you guys, you can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. All right? We will see you next week. Come on, come on, come on.